Hi everyone and welcome to Polar Times. I'm Katharina Heinrich and I will be hosting together with Jack Buckingham and Azamant Tolipe, who is also part of the Antarctica Day project group with me. This special episode in celebration of Antarctica Day 2021. As today, on the 1st of December, the international community commemorates the establishment of the Antarctic Treaty. In 1959, we thought it would be the perfect opportunity to bring Antarctica a little closer to peoples. Especially in times of climate crisis that has an adverse effect on the environment, including the polar regions, and increasing youth movement and engagement, we think it's important to provide some knowledge and awareness about Antarctica. As such, we called for questions from students and asked what they always wanted to know about Antarctica. In this episode, we aim to answer a couple of these questions. In addition to that, the Antarctica Day Project Group will create a little FAQ handbook with all the questions and answers included, which can be used for students as an information tool on Antarctica. Before we start with a little icebreaker, followed by our Q&A session, I would like to give a quick intro to Antarctica. So Antarctica is a continent located on the Southern Hemisphere. It is actually a landmass covered with an ice sheet, which even extends beyond the continent into the Southern Ocean, which surrounds Antarctica. So this is contrary to the Arctic, which is located in the North and is only an ice mass surrounded by land. And as such, it is surrounded by states. Antarctica has no native population, but has permanent human settlements where scientists and staff live for part of the year on a rotating basis. So the continent also doesn't have any countries and technically does not belong to any country. Yet there are seven nations that claim different parts of the continent, which are New Zealand, Australia, France, Norway, UK, Chile, and Argentina. These claims are mostly based on the history of exploration of the continent. But as some states disagreed with the claims, the international community established a unique system called the Antarctic Treaty System. Under this system, the Antarctic is designated as a nature reserve and as a, as a space devoted to science and peace. Again, hi everyone and thanks for joining me today. I'm excited that Jack and Azamat are here with me. And first of all, as a little icebreaker, I would like to know from you two, what is your favorite thing about Antarctica? It can be anything. Hi Katarina, thanks for having us. My name is Jack Buckingham. I'm PhD student at the University of Hull in the UK. Uh, my background is I'm a marine biologist, really, but my project is all about plastic pollution. So hopefully that's some human and some wildlife knowledge to answer these questions. So we'll see. But I guess my favourite thing, oh, that's such a hard question. What's my favourite thing about Antarctica, apart from how oh, incredible it must be to go there? I've been to the sub-Antarctic, which I guess, which was incredible in its own right, but I've never been to the main continent. It just looks so beautiful. It would be great to go there. But for me, the best bit of polar travel, I suppose, was meeting such like a diverse people, like, you know, people who mm -hmm. work there and live there. It's not just science and academia, even by a long stretch. And you meet all sorts of people. So I really enjoyed that. And I think if, uh, if you had to give a really academic answer as well, I maybe think I do like the Antarctic Treaty. Obviously, it's just so mm. unique and it's just really, it's really fascinating and not least to see where it's going to go in the future. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that's true. Nice. Hi, uh, my name is Azamat and I am from Uzbekistan. Currently uh, in my gap year, so to speak, I'm really uh, keen on applying to universities to start a PhD program soon. And I'm really interested in 
uh, I see geophysics and remote sensing. That is why I am, you know, fascinated about both the northern and the southern poles, or basically, you know, we got Greenland and and uh, Antarctica, right? So, yeah, I hope I will get into it as soon as possible. And currently, I'm like doing uh, these uh, outreach activities mostly and working as a freelancer. Azimal, what is your favorite thing? That's that's a really you know good question. When it comes to me, uh, I do really love ice, like snow and ice in general. So, like mm-hmm. imagine being your kids and uh, like knowing what you want. What would you do? You wanted to get the most out of it, right? Like as many or, or as much as of it as possible, right? So biggest mass of ice in the world is in Antarctica, right? So <laughs> that's one of the things why, what uh, I love most about Antarctica. So there's a lot of ice, uh, put, putting it simply. But in general, like talking about like mm, more academically, uh, I would say that it is the fact that the Antarctic, even if it's like so remote uh, out there, you know, uh, in the middle of nowhere, it has huge impact on global climate and global oceans, right? Which impacts each and every one of us. So, yeah, and talking about the Antarctic Treaty, it is, it is one of the real cool things that humanity has ever achieved, in my opinion, because it is an international agreement, right? And you don't really see such an effective international agreement in force. Uh, I cannot recall like any other ones which is as effective as this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And I think we will working, also, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think we will also get to that in a little bit with the questions we received from the students. Um, so we have the chance to talk a little bit more about the Antarctic Treaty as well and give a bit of a background maybe. Let's check on the questions we received. We got a question from Anastasia and Chloe and they were asking how people live there and how do they deal with the harsh climate that is present in Antarctica? So what do you think? How do people live there and how do they deal with the climate? Uh, there's like a, a quick Google this morning told me there's 70 bases on the continent of Antarctica. I'm not sure if that includes the one in the sub-Antarctic as well. The sub-Antarctic is like South Georgia and, and the South Sandwich and, you know, Marion Island and all of those. Yeah, like 70 bases, and they range so massively in size and the number of people who live there. And some of them are only populated over summer and some of them are all year round. And, you know, so you've got the big bases. I think the biggest one is McMurdo, which is run by the US, right? And I think that that's like hundreds of people, maybe a thousand people are there in summer, which is madness. It's like a small, it must be like a small town, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, heard, I, heard, I heard they've got like ATMs there where they, you know, people go and get cash out. And then you've got the really tiny ones where um, the one that comes to mind is Bird Island and that, you know, over winter, only four people stay there. Just, just the four of them all winter long, no ships or anything, which must be just an incredible experience. So yeah, it does vary. I mean, how do they live there? It's just the nature of, you know, polar exploration and technology, we can, we can survive in these extreme places. But then that's the thing that always is so interesting about polar work, I guess. That only half of it, at the most, is going to be science and collecting data 
and stuff like that. And the other half of everyone there is like logistics and operations and mm. transport, getting people down there, getting food down there, doing medical stuff. Um, so that's why it's so interesting and so diverse. And you can meet so many people like yeah yeah that's true yeah i think i read uh today that um mcmurdo on their highest uh or high time there's a thousand people around (laughs) and uh yeah i think that is probably the station where you would think like you say it's like a bit of a city itself i mean they have a landing strip there i think they have a few yeah even a few yeah um Mm. so yeah that is really interesting yeah, it's like, you know, we can call it easily a small town in its own right, I think. When, when you ask someone, how do people li- live there? You know, it's not only about harsh climate, but also some kind of isolation that you might feel, right? And as you said, like, like Jack just said, uh, if there's like four people living and, or overwintering in there, can you imagine how, you know, psychologically people would feel in isolation? I actually cannot really comment on this because I've never been in that kind of situation. and. People, when people go outside, out of the uh, Antarctic stations to do some field work, they need to go out there and spend, I don't know, maybe sometimes a couple of weeks or four weeks, like uh, far from the stations. And then they just set up camps where I think very well equipped to survive there. Right. Yeah. yeah. So then, yeah, when you go out and you do your science, it's like you say, you, you, there are the people who are like camping on the ice <laughs> after like set up tents. So that definitely happens as well. And I'm sure they have like, um, like depots of supplies so you know you can only fly so far in the little planes or whatever yeah. so they'll have like fuel depots and like stop offs along the way and stuff which i mm. imagine especially in summer are going to be you know manned and restocked and all that kind of stuff yeah but like, yeah it must just such be a different experience right because like one of my favorite things about the base i was on that was that everyone knew each other and you made like really good friends and you got to know like everyone there was maybe maximum 30 people there probably less Whereas if you were at like a massive station, I'm sure you'd, you'd make friends and everything, and it just, but it would just be really different. You could do, it's just a whole different world of like opportunities and potential, like good and, and bad, maybe. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Luckily, these days we have uh, proper equipment, like outdoor gear and expedition gear, which keeps us warm. So that helps to survive the harsh climate as well. In general, I think it's um, important that we mention here also that even though we are referring to the stations as like little cities or something, that there's basically no cities as such in Antarctica. Because we also got the question if we can live in Antarctica or basically build cities, for example. I, I love I loved this question because it's so yeah. it's so like sci-fi, right? It feels I think it's like I don't think it's even that new an idea. <laughs> I feel like people have been talking about it for ages and I've like totally talking about living under like under domes, you know, like something out of Star Wars or mm. something. So we could you, you can manage the climate and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think um, it's just you don't want to say it's never going to happen because like who knows what's going to happen. <laughs> but like right now, it's just not possible to the Antarctic Treaty. It's too um, there's the protocol on environmental protection, right? Which means that there's no mining, there's no like anything that's gonna have waste streams or anything like that like even things even construction projects which are happening for science at bases right now are often critiqued for being like too invasive or too destructive or whatever so like to build a city i think the treaty would have to be massively amended which i can't really see any 
nation willingly going for, or at least being the first to go for. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I mean, with, you know, everyone's talked about overpopulation and stuff, and it's a lot of space there. So who, <laughs> who knows? I'm not saying that would be a good idea, but within our lifetimes, it would, it's not unfeasible, I suppose. Even if somebody comes in, uh, one of the countries, like the, one of the signatories of the Antarctic Treaty would come in, like, uh, like claim that they want to make this amendment into the treaty, I think it would be very, very hard to get it through because uh, according to the rules, even if one of the signatories is like against the suggestion, the changes or amendment would not be accepted. So, Yeah, that's true. So basically, based on the Antarctic Treaty, there needs to be a consensus between the contracting parties, so all the parties who signed off on that treaty. And without consensus, there is no decision on it. And this is mainly based because if you would build a city in Antarctica, that basically would, like states would understand it as a claim to the continent, or at least the part of the continent where the, where the city would be located. And of course, since there were states claiming parts of Antarctica, but they decided to freeze these claims and agree to disagree, so to say. So this, they decided that in the end, Antarctica belongs to no one. It is a natural reserve dedicated only to science and we collaborate there. And then if like one state would propose to build a city that would mess everything up basically. So I don't think in the near future that will, like I agree with uh, Jack and also with the environmental protocol, like Jack said, you need to get a permission for everything. And then you have to ensure that you protect the environment of course. So the stations, even though they are pretty solid there i think they need to be able to be rebuilt that there's not much left yeah and then there was also a question which was referring to that maybe we have a quick answer to that before we go to some wildlife questions but um, yeah if there's any property rights i guess it's the same thing right so i guess yeah. they have any nation can build anything anywhere well anything for science like anywhere it doesn't have to the claims of another nation doesn't mean anything you can build your station in a, an area that another nation has claimed because nobody recognizes the claims. <laughs> so in terms of the property rights, I guess, it, but then it, it, it bites both ways, right? So like other, other nations can do that to you. It's very hard to impose any kind of sovereignty over the land. The only jurisdiction any nation really has is over its own kind of what it's put down there, I suppose. The people it sends there, what it's built there. The, the, all the properties, like building stations, they all belong to the governments, right? Not necessarily to, like, like there's no, like, private, uh, and, like, you know, buildings in there, private property. That would be an interesting open question to me right now, but legislation, Antarctic legislation, tells us uh, about the pr private property rights. But so far, everything I heard of Antarctica, like, uh, tells me that there's basically, like, all the property in there is owned by the states. Also with the property rights question, what if someone goes there from a country which didn't sign the Antarctic Treaty and wants to build something? I think like, they're allowed to, right? And they can do other, yeah. Yeah. Because They've not agreed to you, do yeah. other things. Yeah, I guess yeah. it's just a matter of the so, logistics of it and the cost of it. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> and, yeah, I guess in the end, no one would really do that probably. Okay. Let's maybe go to the next question and we would enter the wildlife 
part of Antarctica. And I found one question really interesting and compelling in a way. And um, Dorian, he asked, what is under the ice? Well, it's, it's Antarctica. So under the ice, it's just land. <laughs> <laughs> That's a no, good answer. I guess, I, guess he, I guess he means under the sea ice, right? So yeah, what is under there? I don't know. I'm not sure I'd be able to tell you apart from quite recently. In fact, we talked about it on the podcast. If you'd like to go back and listen to past yeah. episodes. <laughs> uh, we had someone and they, they just, they'd done like, they'd drilled a borehole through the sea ice and put down a camera and they'd found like sponges and sea sponges and you know life on on a bowl living on a boulder at the bottom of the sea under an ice shelf which is like kilometers back from the edge of the ice so it never sees light and they're like how is life they expected to find nothing and they they found life is is my short short answer to that question so so yeah there's definitely like stuff down there but there's room for more to be to be found i'm sure and the Antarctic and, and then the benthic, sorry, like creatures which live on the seabed of Antarctica, like more maybe in the light areas. It's like so diverse and incredible. It's like the same kind of biodiversity, I think, as like the rainforests. So like the number of creatures and the diversity in species is like really off charts. So mm. it, it, you, everyone's like, oh, the penguins and the seals, which are great. Uh, but apart from them, there's tons and there's so much like marine life down there. The question itself is very interesting. What's under the ice? Yeah, just like Jack just said, we, we could talk about the sea ice or we could talk about the continental ice in this case, right? I can and I can talk a little bit about what you could expect to find under the continental ice sheet. So in that case, we're talking about the land, right? So you guys must be like familiar with the fact that Antarctica is uh, a very, very huge mass of ice located on the land. And if you go deeper and reach the bottom of the ice, which could be kilometers of ice, two, three, five, even more than that, you end up in the, in the, uh, in the ground, right? And on that ground, there might sometimes be very interesting things, such as lakes and rivers, streams. So it's not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, how some people might imagine, like there's like uh, solid earth and there's solid ice on top of it. Not necessarily. There's like very interesting dynamics and movement of water going on under the ice so it's very very moving and dynamic and flowing all the time so there's some areas of ice which flows much faster than the other parts of the ice sheet we call them ice streams in other words so uh, in talking about the lakes which are very fascinating to think about and uh, i recently read an article where Scientists, they decided to drill that through the ice right where the, the uh, subglacial lake is, and they kind of reached it. Uh, and they really wanted to look at both the geophysics and chemistry and the biology. But yeah, I'm pretty sure that they could easily find some microbial life, at least, because if you go down the ice, some people, especially you know, young students, might think that the temperature will go up. In fact, is you, if you go deeper and deeper into the ice, temperature might rise by you know, a little, half a degree or even, even more because we have this so-called you know, geothermal heat or the heat that is coming from the ground, right? Between the ice and the ground, there is like heat flow. There, that, that is why, you know, as, because there's a slightly higher temperature, there could be a microbial life <laughs> thriving there as well. Okay, yeah, that's super interesting that you 
gave us like that perspective on Antarctica because when I read the question, I immediately thought about under the ice shells because I'm very much in obviously, the marine obviously marine. I did as well, yeah, so, yeah. yeah, that's the marine biologist yeah. to me, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think that's really cool that you um, also like gave a little insight in what might be or is under the ice on the land mat like part of Antarctica. It reminds so me of something else cool. which will be under the ice as well, in the land, and that's fossils, right? So, like, oh. you know, Antarctica didn't always look like it did today. It used to be warm and sunny and covered in, like, forests and stuff, and the fossil record is definitely still there. I'm sure you, yeah, in our British Antarctic Survey Institute, there's, like, a big room full of, like, fossils and fossil leaves and bones and stuff like that that people have, have gotten from down there. So that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, because I also looked just into the marine part of that and then I found also the same thing um we talked about um uh, Jack that there's uh, that they found sponges and a lot of like unknown species and like species they didn't expect there because you would think with like going away from the open ocean and less light but there's nothing but actually there's so much and I think in general the shelf areas are the most unexplored areas also of the southern ocean because of inaccessibility as well so yeah that's cool and we'll see what else will be found in the future and what the scientists will explore and um yeah maybe we can end up with a i think pretty important and current and yeah up-to-date question basically on how climate change impacts um antarctica before we close off this podcast has anyone an idea like or a knowledge on like how climate change is currently impacting Antarctica? Because we know, I think, I feel like we heard a lot about Arctic and climate change. But like climate change in Antarctica, I feel that is not such a big thing somehow. I mean, it might be, but at least I always just hear that in reference to the Arctic. Yeah, I mean, if I just uh, take over, then (laughs) yeah, I would say... um, the climate change is like uh, something that's happening all over the world, right? And Antarctica is not, uh, you know, another planet. So it's on the same planet. So I can surely say that uh, the, the climate change is impacting Antarctica to some extent. That's the key part, like to some extent. So, uh, yeah, I also tried to read a bit on that. And I actually read that the Antarctic Peninsula, like the west coast of it, is actually also one of the most rapid warming areas on the globe. So especially there, I think climate change has, or climate change impacts have have been seen a lot, which um, ended up in the change of distribution of penguin colonies, for example. Also, yeah, that was also based on the changing sea ice conditions. The polar regions are super important in our global climate system. So if both like, are imp- uh, impacted by climate change and the currents change in their physical setup that affects the whole globe. So even though maybe it's not talked about in a sense like for the Arctic, I think it's still happening there. And I mean, the collapse of like some ice shelves, for example, I think the Larsen ice shelf is one of the most well-known ones probably where like really often some parts have been breaking off in the past. And one of them was even as big as Connecticut, I think, which broke off um, and was like drifting around. I think we talked even about that 
in one of the episodes as well when it was getting closer to the dirt south of Georgia, south, yeah, yeah, that massive Georgia, iceberg, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's definitely, I mean, icebergs breaking off ice shelves is nothing uncommon, but it, I think it will be increased with climate change probably. So, yeah, I guess about climate change. Um, the importance of Antarctica, you both said it already, can't really be understated, can it? It's like it has such a massive yeah. impact on our global weather. But the fact that it's so far out of sight and out of mind, you know, people, yeah. there's this mass, the general opinion about climate change is more like apathy rather than denial. So to like kind of shake people out of that, apathy, the only thing to do is tell them about what's going to really impact them like local like so like local consequences so mm. unfortunately Antarctica is not anybody's local consequence so I think it's probably going to suffer a bit more than like most other places mm. especially because like you say it's one of the most rapidly warming places it's like the barometer both poles are for what's going to mm. happen so I think that's really the the key is trying to like convince people that it's worth you know doing something sooner for something that's for this continent that's so far away that's i think a really good closing point because yeah that's why we did this episode here to also bring our uh, bring antarctica a bit closer to younger people and get them interested in it and help to create awareness for that and of course then we also have to talk about the less positive things like climate change I want to say thank you to you two for being here and helping me to answer the questions. And thanks for the collaboration as well, Jack, for making that possible that we, as Antarctica Day group, could record this session and release it on Antarctica Day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Keep a lookout for the FAQ handbook, which we try to publish as soon as possible with all the answers for all the questions we've got. We have really nice visuals as well. Um, so that will be published on the APEX website, but can also be provided via email. Check also out the other episodes of Polar Times if you're interested to learn more about the polar regions and the life of scientists in the polar regions that can be in Antarctica or the Arctic. Um, then check out the other podcast um, episodes on any podcast platform of your liking. And thanks for listening today. And I'd like to, uh, I don't have some one last word to the young listeners who are listening to this. Okay. Uh, <laughs> really, if you're really interested in Antarctica, then keep that curiosity up, you know, because it is one of the most amazing, you know, and most adventurous things that you might happen to you. And thank you for listening. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, the views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own and do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.